thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Whether you're a long-standing fan of ours or a newcomer to what we do, please do visit the website fantasy-animation.org and take part in the conversations we're having. Either leave us a comment on your favourite blog post, engage with the debates or discussions that our editorial think pieces raise, send over some suggestions for future episodes of the podcast that you'd like to hear, or you can even give us a star rating or a like and a bit of feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's all useful stuff and we really value the contributions of our listeners. If you're thinking of pitching an idea for a future blog post, however tentative or developed an idea, then we'd also love to hear from you. You can again visit the website, click on the submissions tab and find the submit form drop down. You can also take a look at our new team of editors that cover everything we publish, both traditional and non-traditional, from film, TV and event reviews to more reflective work by creative practitioners. They're ready and waiting to see what you've got. You can, of course, also email us at fananimresearch at gmail.com or for more general inquiries or interests in how to get involved, use the Contact Us tab on the website too. But for now, please do enjoy the show. Hello listeners, welcome back to another festive edition of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am, of course, Alex Sargent. Uh, and I'm still, of course, Chris Holiday. It's our Christmas special, uh, suggested by listeners, um, and we had loads of great suggestions, uh, more of which will be coming up in the show later. Um, but uh, we've decided to go with Christmas adverts. Uh, so this is a show about Christmas adverts in general, some of our favorite examples of and more sort of most noteworthy examples of Christmas adverts throughout the um throughout the ages, and perhaps we'll get into conversations about the relationship between Christmas, fantasy, advertising, and animation. Lots of key words there for us to unpack, Chris. Yeah, and also I would say this is unusual for us because it's a Christmas special that we didn't record in like July. It's actually <laughs> December. It's, it's actually December. December. Only yep. just, but it is December. Yeah. Yep. So I think we are we are allowed and this is yeah we are allowed to sort of start talking about christmas officially because i've seen decorations up there are lights up outside so this is unusual for us a christmas special actually recorded seasonally so there we go to help us unpack this uh, this topic we have a very special guest on the podcast we have dr malcolm cook who is an associate professor at the university of southampton uh, malcolm has published on a range of um, issues surrounding um, animation um, from various historical eras his book early british animation came out a couple of years ago um, and he is also the co-editor of animation and advertising with kirsten thompson who is a previous guest on the show back in our scms special um, so who better to have on the podcast podcast to chat to us about the Christmas advertising bonanza. Malcolm, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So thanks, Malcolm. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll kick things off with the obvious question. What is or what do you find interesting about the relationship between animation and advertising? I think there's there's lots of things here. But the, the key thing for me is this has been a central relationship throughout animation history, yet we've largely ignored it when writing animation histories or, or thinking about it. Animators have always worked on advertising. It's often provided a source of income while they were working on other animation films. Companies have often grasped animation because it has particular qualities that we'll maybe talk about later that can embody brands, embody products, and help convince people that they want to buy something or behave in a particular way and um if we look throughout animation history it's actually quite hard to find any animator any studio who hasn't been involved in advertising and yet if you look at the histories it's rarely talked about we've emphasized the importance of 
art or entertainment in animation history. But if you look at the history of Disney, of Pixar, of key figures like Lottie Reininger, who we'll talk about in a moment, or um, Oscar Fischinger, any famous animator, they probably have created advertising at some point. And I think without thinking about advertising, we're not really thinking about the full history of animation. Likewise, I think it shows how important animation is to the wider world and, and the shape it's given to the 20th century, that it's not just a niche art form, but actually it's hard to think of the 20th century without animation and advertising being together. And of course, at Christmas time, that's especially the case. And again, we'll, we'll talk more about why that is. But I think there's particular things about animation that mean it's especially festive that people want to watch this at Christmas. And that's why advertisers would grasp animation as a great way to create their Christmas adverts. And I've, I mean, I was rereading the introduction to your animation and advertising book and and I was kind of jotting things down and and yeah the sort of I hadn't realized that there are so many animation studios pioneers from from kind of Europe and, and beyond that are involved in advertising and so I was I was thinking okay so why is this is it just I know in some cases and some kind of case studies I guess it's to do with needing income at a particularly um, important perhaps early moment in their career or, or or also is it kind of just exposure is it is it both like in your research and and sort of work with animation and advertising it's clear that that you can kind of thread you can create an alternate animation history entirely using adverts presumably and so i just wondered is, was this was this yeah because of uh, income and animators sort of needed money in the early stages of the, their career is it sort of established animators turning to advertising later in their career how how does that kind of work is it is it kind of economics or exposure or is it is it both I mean, those are, of course, important, and I think that's how it often gets started. One of the things we've, we've found exploring it is actually advertising precedes animation and, and immediately that uh, animation, as we would call it now, um, it didn't get used as a term back in the 1910s or 20s. Immediately there, animated advertising is helping form what animation is, that advertisers are going and saying, look, we need something that's different from the live action feature films that we're showing on screen because audiences in some cases, certainly in Britain, for example, don't want to get confused. They need to, to be able to see this is the main feature that we're paying for. This is just some extra item. Equally, it needs to be entertaining and enjoyable for those audiences rather than seeming like an imposition. I mean, we often think of advertising as an imposition, a pain, whether it's pop-ups on websites or, or trailers and things at the cinema that are getting in the way of the thing we want to. And animation becomes a way of, of assuaging those problems for audiences that that actually we're happy to watch these films. They're entertaining, they're short. We don't mistake them for anything else. Their selling power is clearly evident. I mean, that's not always the case. Some other kinds of animated advertising hides the, the product message. If you watch George Powell's 1930s uh, stop motion adverts, for Horlicks, for example, they, they are like little cartoons that you wouldn't even realize was an advert until towards the end where Horlicks comes down and, Deus Ex Machina solves the problem that the characters have been having. So there's always different approaches, but I think it's especially the case that advertising shaped animation history so much that they're enmeshed. 
Um, so we we go beyond just yes, of course, it provided some income, but also it's shaped what we think of as animation, anthropomorphism, for example, that I'm sure we'll come back to later. I think there was a tendency to emphasize that aspect of of animation because it fulfilled advertising qualities. It's not just the other histories we know already. It's interesting. I thought when I, because you've given us a couple of of adverts, about five of them to to watch through, um, five or six, isn't it? And and we're going to talk about those sort of one by one in a, in a, in a few minutes. Um, and as I was watching them, I thought my role on this episode was going to be to sort of just you know make the note of the the, the kind of obvious fantasy genre trope. So I was expecting to see F- Father Christmas. I was expecting to see some elves. I was expecting to see you know the sort of the standard um, iconography of Christmas um, because it's quite a fantastical um, time of the year and there's something kind of uh, fun about the sort of invitation to imagine that Christmas offers up to sort of pop culture. Um, But I actually ended up thinking a lot more about sort of... um, uh, the relationship between fa- the, the act of fantasizing and the act of desire. And there's been a lot of sort of theorists who talk about this, who I might weave as we continue the conversation. But it struck me that, of course, one of the things that advertising must do, or at least in some implicit way, is evoke the desire of the, the assumed spectator. And there's a whole thorny history of sort of the politics of desire in relationship to fantasy theory. Because, of course, desire can be both a very radical um, and and subversive um, emotion because it can it can show us things we don't have and should want or might want to want in a world that isn't a world that could be rather than a world that is and there's something ideologically in flux about desire but also desire is can be if used in another way quite conservative and and, and sort of affirm power structures as they are so so I've got a lot to say about sort of how these different epi- these different individual examples um evoke or don't evoke or implicitly evoke or deal with the issue of desire um, through the way they sort of play with their products and and the animation advertising and i just like so it is, is this i guess the, the question to ask you malcolm after all that nonsense is is what like is there something about the very sort of nature of what an advert is on a sort of ontological or essential level that you think kind of seems to require us to turn to animation because there's something about the act of advertising that feels a little bit beyond beyond the live action and beyond the sort of everyday that animation's so good at doing? Hey, <laughs> possible question. With 10 minutes in, um, I've done it. I'll, I'll retire I, now. I mean, you've come to the wrong person if you want ontolog- ontological essentialisms. I'm always historical specificity. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, you're not wrong. I think there's a, a lot there. One thing I would point out is the adverts I've chosen, and maybe Christmas adverts, emphasize a particular aspect of animated advertising there's a whole other genre here which we're not really getting into which is the more factual the information-based Ad- advertising can be there to inform to uh, help us understand choices we're making and often uh, animation can do that it's say diagrammatic forms that's not going to be something we talk about today though that christmas adverts are all about that side the side you you've highlighted which is desire, um, imagination, the the possibilities, and especially the idea of brands rather than products. You know, we're, we're, if advertising's core function is to sell stuff, nevertheless, it sells stuff often by doing that through ideas and through, you know, what, what would be called brands in the, that industry, that you're, you're trying to communicate particular qualities of something 
rather than just say buy this product it's cheap it tastes good or it does something useful you know these aren't there are lots of those adverts out there um but when when an animation gets involved it often is on that other more emotive more conceptual side of things um and even where adverts are factually based uh they're often then using the animation to get the emotive aspect to make an engagement with the audience if you think of Ardman, of course very famously continue to make lots of adverts uh, the cupra old man or something like that or the lurpak butterman even where those products are pretty basic products there's not much to to sell or branding involved in one sense the animation aspect of those adverts is all about engaging us with something that's actually quite basic does a function we need it we need to buy it but then the animation is the thing that makes us feel like i want cuprinol i want lurpak butter i don't just want own brand essential value butter i need lurpak are we allowed to mention brands here we're good we... yeah i reckon <laughs> yeah other other brands are available um but i, I guess i, I mean yeah, certainly. I know, and I know from your your work, like, uh, more broadly on sort of useful animation, because I was right. I know that you write work on useful animation and animation in ulterior sorts of contexts, and and it's certainly clear from from reading your work there. In fact, the relationship between animation and advertising is so entwined. You might want to consider putting a slash between them. You know, um, that's that's how close and reciprocal they are. What all the cool kids are doing. Um. Yeah, that is what all the cool kids are doing. But obviously, yeah, animated media, form, style, as you say in the introduction, uh, your and, and, and Kirsten Thompson's introduction, that it's sort of shaped, animation is shaped by these intersections with the animation industry. And it's it's part of this reciprocal give and take relationship animation gives to advertising. Advertising, perhaps shapes the direction of certain kinds of studios and, and forms and styles and so forth and and some of the names in the introduction that you mentioned actually earlier on from from disney to, to kind of pixar and lottie reiniger and uh, emil cole and jay stewart blackton um and what struck me actually it was interesting that you sort of created two chronologies in your introduction and uh, to the book and and and, I, and that sort of actually maps quite nicely onto the selection of adverts that you gave us some involve a sort of existing media properties moved into the advertising sphere and others seem sort of you know quote-unquote original um and so I, I i was trying to get a sense and there are two sort of historical timelines it seems there's sort of the aims of of or the the animation and advertising as understood through these sorts of key figures and then there's kind of a second one that's you talk a little bit about that's that's more kind of hidden that there are people that who aren't disney and pixar but who are making animated adverts that that have been kind of sidelined so is it is it that there's this sort of nice it struck me that there was this sort of dual chronology or dual, dual historical um hist, uh, history there's one famous and one not so famous in the way that we understand animation and advertising definitely that's that's part of the appeal is you've got this whole other history that's just completely ignored and it's often not one based around studios and artists i mean animation's often thought about as an artist's form and of course lots of examples are created by individuals and we'll see you know i've got a lottie reininger example here so that that clearly fits into her oeuvre and and uh, authorship style but lots of the the others i don't know who made them really i did i haven't really investigated that that's not to me what's especially interesting they're authored by the brands if you like they're they're everyone will recognize the brands they're selling and that this sort of authorial style is subordinated to this other purpose. Now, sometimes we might, that's why we've 
ignored them because people, especially academics, don't want to be any part of capitalism. They don't want to seem to be celebrating any aspect of it. And I certainly, there's certainly an appeal of critique in discussing this topic, that you're engaging with the way the world is and the, the organisation, the political economy. But equally, we're looking at the way we understand the world through these brands and, and through their organisation of the world, rather than as a something outside of the world, something that looks in. We're, we're all embedded in this system. And if we ignore it, we're ignoring some of the the key functions that animation serves, some of which may not be ones people want to celebrate, I guess, but but that doesn't mean we shouldn't study them. I think that's probably a good moment to move on to our first um, first of the adverts you've selected for us to watch, Malcolm. And I did enjoy, I had a lovely uh, afternoon watching these, so uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking of changing the format to uh, fancy animation slash advertising, but um, <laughs> but we'll see how we go. Um, I mean, I guess you mentioned the Lottie Reiniger one. We perhaps could start there um, because I think that's an interesting example of exactly what you're talking about in terms of um, a figure whose uh, role in advertising is both really important to their overall body of work and yet it's perhaps something that we're um, in danger of of neglecting. And certainly we've mentioned Reiniger and, and done an episode on Reiniger in the past um, where we talked about the, you know, the feature length, um, the uh, Prince Ahmed, and I don't think the, the subject of advertising, if it did came, come up, it came up as an afterthought. So, um, so I think perhaps we in, we in turn are part of that of that process. So, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious um, listeners won't necessarily have this at their uh, you know uh, fingertips, but we'll probably put links to these on the uh, on the on the website if people want to watch along with us but for the sake of listeners Malcolm could you just give us a quick synopsis of sort of what this advert is what happens in it and who and what's interesting about it and we'll go from there of course yeah so the Lottie Reininger examples from the early 1950s it's uh, an example of her work for the the GPO the general post office in the UK so there's one interesting thing that she's an emigre filmmaker who came to Britain from Germany and the transnational international exchange that happens in advertising is key there. Um, it's in her typical silhouette cutout style, um, which uh, people will know if they've seen Prince Ahmed or, or other films, but equally has been quite influential on things more recently, like the Harry Potter, uh, that sequence is has that silhouette style. Um, it features a story about Father Christmas is kind of going on strike because everyone was late last year posting their letters. Uh, but this year, everybody knows that dates, the last posting dates for Christmas, and therefore Father Christmas is happy and decides to carry on and Christmas is saved through this. Um, so the, the message here is a simple one about behavior more than a product, that it's promoting people to post early for Christmas but also then has some some other qualities to it, um, enhancing the, the the brand, if you like, of the GPO. Although it's a government agency, it wants people to feel good about something that in other respects is just this very mundane, functional thing. I guess that one of the things I wanted to talk about with it is the idea of craft and that at Christmas especially, people want to hold on to a sense of the homemade. That That's something that's been discussed with Reininger a lot. Um, you know, Tashi Petter and Caroline Ruddle have, have done lots of work recently on Reininger and, and craft. The idea of craft is something central to her work. 
Um, and that's something we think about at Christmas a lot. You know, people might consume mass produced goods at other times of year, but everybody wants to make things at this time of year. And and just the act of writing Christmas cards. I mean, most people don't send post very much anymore, but it's still something we do today, writing Christmas cards. And so Reiniger's style, that hand cut silhouette, hand manipulated process connects with these ideas about craft, the homemade, the homely tradition that are, are being communicated through the adverts. Well, it's, it's funny because as you were talking, I was, I was I looked up homemade Christmas gifts and I was thinking obviously about the particular climate that we're in at the moment and, and the accessibility that people have to, to going out to the shops and so forth. And, and I remember a sort of wave of programs every Christmas, as you say, that talk about um, giving something to, that's a little bit more sort of bespoke from, you know, handmade um, rugs and, and uh, kind of wallets to wearable blankets and fruit gin and all that sort of stuff. People that are just sort of making their own sort of stuff. Um, but it's also interesting that of all of the Christmas adverts that you sent over I think perhaps the Hershey's one although less so which we'll come to it it's it's sort of the least Christmassy insofar as you know thinking of color palettes because it is all silhouette animation it is these really intricate and ornate um backlit figures that that Reiniger as you said traditionally works with um and yet it's all there is a sense of Christmas through through the the the, the decorative nature of of the the images that you see it's not it's not colorful and it's not sort of i guess magical in the traditional sense but there's something about uh, i mean i wrote down yeah it's it's i put based in the north pole question mark and then i because i was trying to think about because it's very difficult with a lot of the silhouette films to get a sense of place and space you know you don't have your traditional establishing shot and then your analytical editing that goes in like it's all on sort of one plane both in the way that it's received and ultimately the way it's sort of produced um what struck me about it was it would it seem to be the most actually informative i.e. it's giving you information as information about the last postal dates in a way that some of the other adverts i was thinking i'm not i, I don't know anything about hershey's here or cartier I, but I, there was something quite sort of yeah informational about that and perhaps ties into your to the to the your broader work on useful animation and then i was thinking obviously john grierson's gpo and his traditions in documentary filmmaking versus this animated fantasy so I was I was kind of really struck and wasn't expecting it to see I'd, I'd sort of forgotten I knew that Reiniger worked on on adverts but hadn't really sort of hadn't really thought that that she'd made a she'd made a kind of Christmas themed one but yeah I thought I thought it was great and very true to her style and, and would fit really nicely in a discussion and actually I think bears out exactly your point about how we should how and why we can should consider these kinds of adverts as part of a filmmaker's work and as a body of work and as as a way of thinking about their authorship as it moves across different media forms there's absolutely no reason as you say from Tashi Petter's work and Caroline Ruddle's work the way we can recontextualize Reiniger and, and actually her use of fairy tales presumably um, as actually present in in things that are perhaps forgotten and actually I was wondering is this because is this because adverts are not accessible in the same way I mean I don't know whether this is something you've come across in your own work but when we're talking about Reiniger's adverts or we're talking about um, Pixar's adverts uh, is it just that they're not accessible or have they sort of slipped through the cracks there or are they just available and people aren't really talking about them because this this one in particular seemed really close to what what Reiniger was doing as part of her style in in other um, kind of contexts. Yeah I mean it, it, there's definitely archival issues about 
these films don't get preserved. Obviously, A, authorship-wise, who do they belong to? In, in lots of cases, there's multiple parties involved. It's not just an artist. It's also perhaps an advertising studio, and it's also a, a, a brand that's being advertised. So there's lots of practical questions about who owns these films, and then archives tend to follow history. So the choices archives make in terms of preservation and so on are often rooted in the history that we have. And the history we have currently says advertising is not important. So archives make choices based on the histories we have, and that's a good reason to rewrite the histories we have um, and, and go and discover these films, because these films don't get preserved in the same way and they get forgotten, and even though they're they're important. On a broader point that you were asking there, Chris, I think there's some interesting tensions here between historical and cultural specificity. There's the timelessness of this advert in one sense, that it, it's trying to talk to that fairy tale tradition. It's trying to speak to a timelessness. Um, but in the other sense, of course, today, when we have emails and everything, it looks very of its time in another way. And likewise, it seems on the one hand, rooted in British culture, in a British institution, in the GPO. Um, and, the, you know, everybody, Father Christmas has a, a British accent. Uh, so it seems very, very British. But of course, Reininger, as an emigre filmmaker, was, was crossing borders. And lots of the adverts we have here are all about crossing borders uh, and becoming more uh, global marketplace. And therefore, there's some some tensions at work there about is this rooted in a particular time and place, or are these crossing borders and and changing as they do so? The only the only thing I'd add is is the, the on the note of crossing borders and the on, idea of being of its time is that what it made me think of sort of in terms of histories of, of fantasy cinema is I think you could argue similarly as much as it needs to be placed within the, the context of Reiniger's career. There's a there's a relatively famous article by a scholar named Peter Valenti on 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 a subgenre of fantasy filmmaking that was particularly prevalent sort of post Second World War up until about the early 1950s um, called that he calls the film Blanc which is a deliberate pun on the film noir and it's a sort of the opposite you know sort of like the the, the light side of the film noir at exactly the same period and he's talking about films like it's a wonderful life angel on my shoulder um in the british context a matter of life and death these movies that put characters in dialogue with a quasi supernatural quasi folkloric but also quasi judeo christian um iconography and and appease a worldview that's been very traumatized by the specter of sort of the second world war and the mortality uh rates and all this sort of stuff where don't worry there are forces at work in the world and they are good and benevolent um and kind um and it's sort of you know as much as the film noir is tapping into the anxiety of this era the film Blanc is tapping into the sort of optimism or the, the desire for for uh, a reconciliation of this era, um, and it just made me think this is a this is an example of a film Blanc. It's uh, you know it's we've got Santa chatting with Saint Peter um, as he does um, running around, and and its role is to again it's to take something like the post service and enchant it. Uh, and make you feel like be, taking part in something as simple as sending letters on time makes the world a better place. Uh, so it's fulfilling that function as well. So I think, you know, histories of fantasy could do well to look to advertising because we have here a fantastical short movie that does exactly all the things that other feature length films are doing. 
Yeah, I mean, it, and it's making the GPO the equivalent of Father Christmas, yeah. as you say, a benevolent force, even though in, in many respects, if we're thinking about Britain's imperial history and what's, you know, what's happening, it, it's a product both of the empire and of increasing global capitalism. Uh, so Reininger, and that might be another reason why these films get ignored, because it's really hard to completely love a film that's selling those things, sure. imperialism, capitalism. These are things that we certainly within academia and artists are reluctant to be associated with. And, and especially Reininger, who's someone who was obviously an emigre filmmaker because she had to leave Germany uh, and she was, you know, she had to leave Britain as well because uh, during the war as a German uh, citizen, she was still considered uh, sort of a, an illegal alien. This it's not a neat history. There's it's a lovable cartoon and it's got this nice cozy feeling to it, but underlying it is some quite disturbing things that have come to a head in the 1950s post-war. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it's it's interesting that the film um is is fulfilling a cultural function that that you know and, and and you're right about that it is i've got one of these films which i have a particular sort of dislike for for exactly that reason of like how can i admire the artistry when it's ultimately serving this sort of massive corporate cynical cause but you know i think you know also i think it's important and what your work does nicely is it complicates that distinction between of course you know i'm i'm a i'm a scholar of hollywood cinema it's not like i write about um countercultural avant-garde radical <laughs> movies um i write about movies that are essentially doing exactly the same thing it's just they're product is is the thing itself rather than an, another product but it's still entrenched within all those power structures that you highlight there malcolm so it's a it's a useful complication to make but what one positive we can maybe draw is here this is a female filmmaker and maybe advertising because it's subordinated was a space in which women often could find a role where they weren't allowed in other areas so if we're trying to provide a slightly more positive aspect of it that is one which is if we're rewriting this history, it partly provides a space for us to find more female filmmakers who weren't allowed to direct Disney films, but were able to work in in advertising because it didn't have that cachet. And Jane Gaines has talked about that early cinema has got a lot more female filmmakers because it was seen as unimportant, uneconomic, or it hadn't developed yet. And I think there's a good argument that advertising is the same, that people who weren't allowed space in the mainstream industry can find a space in advertising. So perhaps there's a more positive way of thinking about that, those things too. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the narrative or the, 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 the dual narrative of margins and mainstream seems to obviously run right through animation anyway, you know, that, that it was sort of marginal and has since been sort of perhaps centered in, in a particular kind of way. I guess what struck me about, the Reiniger advert was actually thinking about what Christmas adverts do more broadly is that they they sell an object or an item or a product or a commodity and and that's part of their value at Christmas time prices go up you know the shops not keeping Christmas quiet from about October onwards all that sort of stuff but it, it struck me that Reiniger's film does a, or advert does a really good job of sort of selling 
selling the the feeling of Christmas, the emotion of Christmas, and 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 this is something that runs through a lot of them. And I was doing a bit of research into into one of the adverts, which will remain nameless, but that it's it's rooted in a sort of the the, the brand intent is thoughtful giving. That's what the but actually what it does is that it. it what connects up a lot of these adverts is that it's selling sentimentality or it's selling a feeling that you only get at a particular time of year and 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 the emotion of that and 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 it comes from the sound and then the use of kind of carols that you only hear at a particular time of year and some of the adverts that you sent over do have um, a sort of turn some are some are particularly strange adverts and I, I do want to talk about one one of them in particular because I was like I don't really see how this is a Christmas advert and I think we all know which one I'm talking about but there was something about it conjuring up that the magical, I like the Alex was saying about the idea of enchantment. I think that runs through Reinegger's because it's only a minute long. Um, but at the same time as it gives all this information about letters and parcels and when they need to be sent, it kind of come conjures up this image of frivolity and fun and sort of jolliness and, and an emotion. And it really sells in, in a short space of time and through quite intricate, but, um, block silhouettes sells sells us an emotion and i re- and i really liked that in a way that some of the other the others tried to do but didn't quite and i wondered whether the pared down silhouette style um at the ri- uh, you know at the risk of not taking anything away from on the skill but the pared down style and the element of craft gives it gives it something that the other other adverts sort of don't have in their pr- pristine digital illusionism but yeah I, I really liked it and it's it's sort of as i was watching i thought this is going immediately going on to a syllabus somewhere should we, should we, in spirit of time, we should probably move on to our, one of our next choices. Um, in fact, uh, let's, why not, seeing as Chris just evoked pristine digital illusionism, uh, jump to uh, the Cartier. Cartier? I mean, this is actually a brand I've never heard of, which probably speaks to my lack of wearing a watch since the age of eight. But um, the Cartier advert, which I suspect is the one you were just referring to, Chris, about not feeling particularly Christmassy and it seems to involve... Um, well, a leopard uh, or a tiger uh, transforming uh, in various capacities. Malcolm, do you want to just give us a quick um, description of this of this advert and and why you picked it? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm not a Cartier uh, <laughs> consumer either. I'm not that rich. It's a high end luxury goods brand. So if you go to any airport or any you know Park Avenue shopping place, that's where you'll see this brand. So the, it, it does contrast very strongly with the last one in that respect. Uh, to describe the ad, it's computer generated um, uh, photo reel panther. Um, we can come back to why it's a panther going yes, through please. both. Yes, please, because I put, <laughs> I, put, I put digital leopard question mark generated by a spark. I, that's all I've got. That is all I've got. So carry on right. we'll put a pin pin in that and we'll come back to that later yes carry on Sorry about yeah the digital panther runs through new york and then paris followed by both a kind of mystical shadow panther and these uh what do you call them little sparks the kind of digital effects that don't have any real name and don't have any existence in our world but seem magical um the crackle they have it in comic book terms but it's not crackle here in the same way uh yeah the the reason for choosing so number one the panther is is interesting because that's the the kind of brand icon for cartier they're they're famous for certain brooches and jewelry that features that panther so what the 
when we're thinking about animation, we often think about anthropomorphism. And so there's a, this natural desire to bring alive a product in any way, to give it personality. And, and clearly jewellery has no real function as such. It, it is essentially decorative. It, it, it is non-useful. And that's perhaps something interesting in and of itself. But the fact that Cartier have then anthropomorphized that or it, it's created an a, a animal character to to sell their products and to make people feel a connection to it, while also very clearly signaling this is high end. It doesn't have a brand name on it, but anyone who's in the know, and you two obviously aren't in the know, uh, is knows this is a very expensive item. If you see a Cartier Panther, you know this has cost someone a lot of money and it's about that visible conspicuous consumption. That's, yeah, the opposite of the the craft and the sort of family feelings that we maybe had with the Lottie Reininger advert. So I think that that was the key reason for choosing it is animation is often the go-to choice for advertisers because it can bring a product to life. It can give it a personality in a way that no other form can do. For Cartier, they've already done that in their product itself. So it's then natural to extend it into an animated version of that that character. It's very different from a spoke cartoon spokes character in one sense, and we'll see sort of examples of cartoon characters acting as spokespeople for, for products later. But in another sense, they're exactly the same. They're aimed at different market segments, but they're doing the same thing, which is animation brings things to life. If that's that's animation 101, if we can bring a product to life, people want it and therefore they will will buy it, even if it's a £25,000 brooch. I certainly got a sense of the of the in terms of the visual detail in the advert compare you know the, the fact is that I, I watched this one I think before Rein, the Reiniger one in the list that you sent and uh, and the digital lushness of the of the shots the the shift in scale the the visual replication of the sort of panther come leopard thing both two two different ways of representing so a sort of photoreal leopard um or panther and then a sort of um essentially a, a shot of a of a panther that it looks like the earlier version of the real photo real one i.e or sort of digital wireframe um model and and the advert i had to watch it a couple of times to get a sense of sort of narrative and actually again that's one of the reasons why i, I like the reiniger one because it had a really nice self-enclosed little narrative and and a couple of the other ones too this one i was trying to get a sense of okay this sort of red spark this this mystical uh like will of the wisp thing the you know that kind of comes down and 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 is tried to grasp it's playing with cats inability to to chase lights and stuff like that and i quite like that uh, and then it's sort of morphs into this this um sort of mirror image of this uh panther so that there are two digital panthers looking at each other and then it kind of just goes berserk and you have the camera moving in different places you have uh, these sort of really lush and detailed skylines and the way that the um spark flies across the night sky uh yeah i i sort of it was very it was one of those adverts where you get to the end and go, what is this? Oh, yeah, it's for that. And then it tells you at the end. I felt like with the title, I think the title of it is Winter's Tale or Winter Tale. And I felt like they came to the advert, came to that at the end. They came, did the advert and went, we need something kind of Christmassy. So, yeah, we'll call it Winter Tale and, that, and that'll be fine. But, it, I mean, it looked fantastic. And it was obviously 
the, the lushness of the product is well matched to the to the yeah the the digital illusion that's being presented here but yeah it was sort of chalk and cheese if we're comparing it to the the silhouette animation of Reiniger I don't know yeah with Alex's fantasy hat on I know he loves a bit of anthropomorphism so yeah I'll defer to defer to him well you know you love a bit of anthropomorphism Chris I, I just follow you along for the ride a bit but um yeah I mean I think it's the only well, I don't know as an animation you know as the non-animation expert here um the only it's the only one that sort of declared to me quite obviously at its sort of CGI-ness and there was a certain pristine quality so i don't know that you could have a clunk you could have a clunky go at trying to match the the brand that you're articulating there malcolm with with the choice of technology i think there's perhaps an interesting conversation to be had about um the relationship between like animation as as perceived as a costly expensive technology yeah, paired with some of the luxury that i that brands seem to to produce because there's one coming up obviously that has a certain high-end luxury quality that seems to be almost trying to use basically there seems to be an implicit undercurrent behind some of these adverts which is look how much we've spent on this advert we we must be making loads of money our product must be really good and you must need you know like that's all part of the sort of legitimization that a lot of advertisement can do that you can trust us we know what we're doing look how much we've spent on this on this thing to, to advertise to you so yeah i mean it struck me of that and i know what you mean chris i think actually formally the thing's quite radical in its own way i mean completely divorced of context because context is not anything particularly radical about it but the way the film is playing with sort of um a narrative that is is so overtly fantastical that it almost reminds me of of what todd mcgowan's called this calls the cinema of fantasy which is sort of this like um Type, a type of cinema he theorizes as being a cinema that sort of demonstrates to the viewer the fecundity and and sort of um, uh, obliqueness and and fragile nature of one's own ability to fantasize, and that you can you constantly spend your life fantasizing, thinking that if you could only get these things, that would be it. But actually, fantasy is ghostly and pro- and primal and 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 energy alone. And that sort of sort of demonstrated in this clip. There's a sense that. You know, there's no sense to communicate that what you need in life is a watch. There's just a sort of abundance of fantasy without any target or or purpose or direction towards it. It's just there on screen. So I was kind of struck by it. I think it's the most formally odd and confusing and interesting to watch, devoid of all context and, <laughs> and uh, all that sort of stuff as well, though. So yeah, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's an interesting choice. What? So it's a Christmas adverts then so it was released during the christmas period what why why what is there something about different brands choosing to lean into or out of christmas well i think i mean there's some basic stuff here which is as i say it shows new york and paris and the, the high-end shopping streets in those two cities which would obviously be very busy at this time of year ordinarily mm. and they're going for the market of i guess this is gendered but but people buying these very expensive high-end goods for their partners, lovers, um, what have you. Um, so there is clearly some basic function still going on here. There's no advert in which it's completely intangible, but it's all about the intangible and what you were talking about, Alex. I, th- I feel like the idea of buying a Cartier item is not that it has any function you know you can buy a third i'm a swatch man you know you can buy a 30 pound swatch and it'll tell you the time very accurately you don't need a five thousand pound watch to tell the time accurately um and you and even more so one of those leopard brooches 
is purely decorative. It has, you know, nobody wears cloaks that need holding together with a pin anymore. It's 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 purely conspicuous consumption and an attachment to the the brand ideals that are entirely intangible. And so that intangibility of of CGI and especially as you say that capacity of these strange wispy lights and then the 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 total lack of adherence to any coherent space makes it very appealing to have cgi doing this because it's saying not only is it yeah it's expensive you can feel the money on screen here but also that you can you can get a sense of a a a quality an emotion a feeling that you get by buying one of these or they want you to to feel when you get one of these products it goes way beyond its function its use value if we're thinking in in marxist terms um so yeah, uh, equally of course it does show this this spatial jump from New York to Paris seems interesting. It's the, it's probably the only ad that's not English language. There's no language in it, but Cartier uh, being a, a sort of French brand name, and ha- how are we thinking about the shift to globalization? If the Lottie Reininger film from 1950s was rooted in a specific country and could not be exported you know the posting dates somewhere else just it's just not that meaningful here we've got the idea of these global brands that don't live in any particular country anymore and sit outside of it and and so maybe that that ineffable quality of that cgi also is an apt way of communicating the ineffability of multinational conglomerates that that control our world, but don't seem to have any place anymore. They they exist outside of space in in, in one sense. So that seems really interesting to me in this this advert. I certainly I absolutely agree, and I think the the playing it on silent you you'd be forgiven for perhaps thinking it was a, a an advert about like phone signal because i was thinking about the idea of not a network culture and reach and and also this idea I'm, i mean i'm kind of fascinated by alex's point about um you know it's been 60 odd episodes and i'm fascinated by a point that alex has made but it's happened um yes! so <laughs> so cg's perceived worth as a visual medium this idea that cg kind of just is expensive and obviously this is then concentrated at christmas when we when we think about the 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 and i was thinking actually about event television and event cinema and and the digital digital productions relationship to event cinema and how this is here we go the countdown to the premiere of a particular christmas advert which is is certainly true of a couple of the ones that we'll end up looking at and one in particular in in this in this sort of case absolutely the sort of reach and 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 the digital prestige and and the sort of yeah the 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 money on screen and I find that kind of really interesting. There's something definitely about this this advert that is matching the the prestige and the luxury of the product with that sort of expensive and perceived worth of of a, of a digital technology that's kind of in trans um, intangible but but everywhere like the internet and 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 we're all sort of kind of connected and I. And yeah, it kind of looked like a Vodafone advert, you know, if we're going to go full out and advertise brands on this podcast, which apparently we are now. Hi, everyone. Just pausing the podcast to thank everyone for their contributions to these listener choice episodes. Um, We've been featuring these once a month over the past few months um, of the year. And it's been a real delight to hear your suggestions and be pushed into thinking about new types of fancy animation that perhaps we wouldn't have considered doing um, and exploring um, new avenues of popular media with you all. So thanks very much for your suggestions. 
Absolutely. Uh, and for our special Christmas episode, the winning vote went to Sarah Wingrove, who sort of allowed us to, to think about Christmas and fantasy and animation in a slightly different way. So for our listeners' choice, we asked you to, to sort of think about your favourite um, kind of fantasy animation Christmas uh, special, what we should discuss on the podcast. And Sarah Wingrove suggested the kinds of animation that, w- that is featured on advertising. So Christmas advert, Sainsbury's, M&S, John Lewis. So thank you, Sarah. Um, it's given us a real sort of way of thinking about, I think, fantasy and animation during during this festive period. A few honourable mentions, thanks to Bella Honus Rowe, who has simply written Arthur Christmas, obviously, and I think she's saying obviously, because Bella is obviously the editor of Aardman Animations Beyond Stop Motion, a wonderful academic collection of essays about Aardman, um, featuring stuff on Arthur Christmas. Um, I think there are two really rather good essays in there by me and you, Chris, but I could be mistaken. Yeah, well, I, I sort of had a similar thought. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great, yeah, great collection. So thank you. Thank you, Bella, for that for that sort of suggestion. Um, another honourable mention goes to Vincent M. Gain, who gave us the suggestion of Klaus. So Klaus, uh, very popular um, 2D Christmas animated special um, that premiered on Netflix uh, a year ago. Uh, yeah, a really popular one. And hopefully, I think that was a, that was a, a close thing. Um, uh, it was, yeah, the first animated film from Netflix to be nominated from a, for an Academy Award, which is really both for animation and for Christmas themed animations as well so thank you Vincent for that suggestion and then finally we had a suggestion from Toby Jungius who is the co-host of a fan podcast called the New Century Book Series where he chats about movies and games and stop motion uh, animation and he's um, well went down a rabbit hole of various Rankin and Bass versions of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer um, including the 1964 uh, classic um, but also some follow-ups and sequels of which um, went into, um, in his words, strange, strange places. And whilst we would have loved to have gone down those strange, strange places, I think that might have to wait for another year. Um, but thank you, everybody. Um, and uh, thank you all for your continued uh, listenership uh, and uh, encouragement. It's been it's wonderful chatting you all. And the conversations will flow on until 2021. You can follow us via our various social media uh, streams at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, as well as Fantasy-Animation.org. We're going to take a quick break at the end of this podcast, just for a, uh, our two-week um, Christmas break. We'll be back in early January, and we've already got a few um, episodes in the can ready to release, um, and there's some doozies out there. So we're excited to share with you in 2021 um, and continue these conversations we're having um, it's been really exciting but for now let's get back to the show and merry christmas i think let's let, to, to keep the pace going let's move on to to another one but i think it pairs nicely with what we've just been talking about in terms of relationship between brand a sense of luxury a sense of expense um the advert as events um hopefully you guys know where i'm going with this which is the john lewis um advert what's it called the uh, the the bear and the bear and the hair bear and the hair i mean so this is where i'm going to get the hate mail this week because this is my <laughs> least favorite by a country mile it always has been i knew it was going to be going into it but fine uh malcolm if for those who don't know perhaps our non-uk listeners what is the bear and the hair all about so uh yeah f- for international listeners john john lewis partnership and waitrose a big high street shops uh department store and supermarket uh we can come back to their corporate organization in a minute hopefully uh each year for quite a few years now they've had this trend of making an animated or semi-animated advert that becomes a big event a big pr stunt that towards the end of november they can launch the ad to the world having kept it under wraps generate loads of free pr and social media shares as well as actually paying for airtime on on tv and on the web um 
and they've very commonly done this with animation, which I think is is really interesting. In this case, it's uh, the backgrounds are CGI, I think, but the the main characters are all anthropomorphized animal characters in a Disney tradition. They've kept the hand drawn quality, like those later Disney films, like. 101 Dalmatians, where rather than cleaning it up extensively, you still get that real sense of the jittery outlines of the hand-drawn quality. Um, it's all about character animation and getting a sense of these animals. This, the story is that the the bear misses Christmas every year because he's hibernating, of course. That's his nature, uh, his, his need. Um, but the hare is there to... to help organize Christmas. And this year they get the bear an, an alarm clock, spoiler alert, which wakes him up at Christmas time. So he can come out at Christmas day and join all the other animals. Um, there's a lot of weird things. I can get why Alex wouldn't like this because there's some really weird stuff. And like anything that has animals in it, you're always thinking about anthropomorphism, the way we think about animals these aren't really animals in any meaningful sense here. They're, they're, they're humans in different shapes. But um, the reason I chose it, the, the main thing I wanted to do beyond, we had to talk about John Lewis because they've, you know, it's, it's investing in the animation industry. There's lots of animators in this country who would, you know, spend the whole year working on a John Lewis ad. This year, they kind of spread the work around multiple groups. And I think, that's what's interesting about this is the idea of collectivity is central to this, that it's not just the bear and hare. There's also all the other animals in the forest gather around this Christmas tree. So from John Lewis's point of view, it's about Christmas is the time of coming together and community. And they're, they're trying to latch on to that with their, their brand and animation's the ideal form for that because it's a communal activity you know we don't have a star here other other tv ads christmas ads will hire a famous person and get them to be the spokesperson for it here it's all about the collective which it's about the collectivity of christmas and everyone coming together it's about the fact that animation is a collective process this is hugely labor intensive advert uh, that requires lots of people to work on it and that john lewis and and Waitrose are collectively owned by the partners that, that work there. So rather than being stock exchange listed, Waitrose, John Lewis are a, a collective company. Of course, they're still there to make a profit and they're, they're still part of a corporate capitalist process in one sense. But in another sense, one of their differences is that collective ownership. And so the at least the intent of this ad is to create this synergy between those different qualities. And it's not about selling a product. So, um, you know, we'll see some other ads which are very much about the product, the commodity. Here, it's about the, the brand and giving us that quality. And the quality here is, I would say, collectivity is the key word. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have... It's the one, funny enough, it's the one that I had the most notes on, but actually I think that was a symptom of the fact that there is a lot written on these adverts and, and John Lewis adverts, as you, as you say, this sort of event television. And and when you're doing a bit of research into the, yes, I kind of get the narrative, I, I kind of quite like the narrative of it. Um, I was intrigued by this, the background, so 
at first I thought it was CG backgrounds, but then I was reading about that there were 3D sets that were built at Shepperton by John Lee, who worked on Frank and Weenie. And then I thought, okay, so maybe some of it is it's, it's sort of a hybrid in lots and lots of ways. You have sort of CG backgrounds, but potentially with stop motion sets in addition to an environment or characters that are 2D. Um, I totally buy the emotional reaction and its relationship to character animation. What's interesting about both the bear and the hare is that they, they both have Twitter accounts and they will be tagged in this advert come Monday morning, which I thought was interesting and also harrowing, and 5,000 people follow them. Um, it's obviously John Lewis, as you said, Malcolm, has form with regards to these Christmas mini-movies. It's, you know, it's, it's all about, and when I said earlier about the, the brand identity of sort of thoughtful giving, I think that is that, that was the brief that John Lewis gave the animators. Um, animators made up from a London-based studio, Blinkink, alongside a New York and LA um, uh, company as well. Uh, and also, I was interested that the traditional animation was led by the director or the co-director of Brother Bear, Aaron Blaze. So Disney's 2000 and, and I think it's 2003, 2004, that kind of time. So Disney's sort of post. It's, I guess it's interesting within Disney history because it's like the penultimate film before Disney moved to CGI. You have Brother Bear, I think, and then you have uh, Home on the Range and then you move, Disney moved to, to CGI with, with Chicken Little. So uh, those sorts of just pre-digital Disney films tend to get forgotten because they're not the anarchic Emperor's New Groove that we've obviously talked about in a previous episode um, and they're not the, the studio seismic shift to digital they're sort of like the last two where apparently influence is waning and they, they're creatively stagnant all that kind of energy uh, is lacking from the studio and then they get plugged into CGI and they're away so but I thought it was interesting that kind of the co-director of Brother Bear and also worked on The Lion King and many others which were obviously um, particularly renowned for their, their anthropomorphic casts Aaron Blaze, his work on this. I'd love to do a bit more research into to what his role on the on the advert was, but yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it looks great and is very luscious, and the music is is um, very evocative, uh, and the shift between scenes, it's very sentimental. It's pushing buttons, it's doing all the right. Th- it kind of does what a Christmas advert should should do, but but there is still there all there is always that sort of yeah. What am I? What am I? It's like you know someone getting your wallet wrapping it up and going just take the money out of that whatever i spent on you there's something there's something about that about it which i couldn't kind of get past but alex is looking at me like he's about to get all the hate mail again no i'm not i mean i I hadn't considered the the relationship between the narrative of sort of collectivism and the and the corporate structure of of john lewis actually that hadn't struck me and you're you're absolutely right malcolm and it's something to think about because that does complicate um, the kind of cynical attitude I have to it, which is just because I live in the UK and every year we got this, we get bombarded by this advert and lots of people seem to think it's the greatest artistic sort of moment of the year. And I'm have the typically academic response and sort of wish to draw my attention elsewhere to other things. But I think, you know, we've already talked about why perhaps that in itself is quite a simplistic thing to do. So, um, you know, to try and be productive about it, uh, I think there's an interesting equation here because I think the Disney analogy is fair. I think we've both we've all made it now, and there's something about the idea that what John Lewis have done is managed to recapture or create a, a Disney movie, the likes of which isn't made anymore. And I think it's very much firmly selling to a to a certain age demographic who are nostalgic for a certain kind of animation. Uh, and so what they seem to be doing is sort of positioning themselves as the sort of reclaimers of a certain kind of almost, I guess, lost childhood. And there's something interesting about Christmas and the relationship between children um, and the relationship between children and fantasy. And that, you know, obviously what a lot of what Christmas is, 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 
a sort of cultural infantilization, not in a necessarily pejorative way, but certainly you you spend a lot of time um, constructing a society to to appeal more to children. You know, from Santa's grottos grottos to you know leaving mince pies out um, to to John Lewis adverts. So there's a certain sense that. And, and, and it's quite odd that it's obviously a lost childhood rather than children, because there's absolutely no way any child in their right mind would want to spend any time in a John Lewis department store, because it's not like it's full of soft play and uh, and and fun. It's full of you know iPads and um, and couches and uh, those kinds of things. No, I, I, that's a really interesting idea, isn't it? I hadn't really been thinking about this, but yes, the the fantasy of childhood rather than actual childhood. Mm. So we, I don't know which advert you're going to go to next, but there is an advert here that is very obviously for children uh, selling a product that children will consume more than anything and this john lewis advert's n- not for kids no no child wants to watch this john lewis advert even though it seems to be both about christmas which is meant to be all for kids and its animation which as we all know has often been stereotyped as being all for kids this adds neither of them even though it it rests on that fantasy of childhood was the advert you were referring to uh, prehistoric or Arctic in its, its flavour? Um, <laughs> yeah, pre- prehistoric, although both probably. Sure. Uh, go, no, uh, sure, let's go there then. Right, so this is an advert for American cereal. This is very much an American advert and an American product. Um, Cocoa Pebbles, uh, which is a high fructose corn syrup containing American cereal being advertised. Aren't they all? Aren't they all, eh? Aren't they all? <laughs> Uh, being advertised by the the Flint Flintstones. Um, this is from 1985, but in some respects, I I chose it because it speaks to a different, another neglected history of animation, which is television animation um, intersects with advertising importantly here. So. Uh, to describe the ad, Fred is asleep at Christmas. He's not sharing his cocoa pebbles with the kids and the ghost of Christmas past in Barney's form comes in to warn him that if he doesn't change his ways, he's you know he's going to end up the same way as Scrooge. Uh, and, and of course, Fred then corrects his ways and shares his sugary cereal. Um, the yeah, so the ads from the mid '80s. It's not a masterpiece by any means, um, but it's to me what was interesting is the Flintstones and all those 1960s TV animation were driven by advertising in the most basic sense that TV was free to view, depended entirely on advertising for its income. The Flintstones was a primetime show initially, uh, and and charged a fair amount because it had high viewers and a whole family audience, but then transfers to Saturday morning TV, which is when I think Jason Mattel talks about that's when animation gets that childish association in many respects, because these low cost made for TV, Hanna-Barbera, Filmation type TV cartoons being shown on Saturday mornings when parents are still in bed, kids get up and watch it. And of course, eat cereal. So, the advertising was much cheaper during these Saturday morning TV shows uh, and selling products that are genuinely kids want and selling them in a way that kids want. So there's this sort of mutual relationship between advertising and animation here that huge swathes of animation history would not exist without advertising in the most basic sense that TV wouldn't 
wouldn't work economically without advertising. And then you're making adverts that appeal to kids who are watching these particular shows and making shows that will appeal to kids so that advertisers buy time during them. So there's trying to distinguish which came first, animation or advertising of this kind here is impossible. The two things are fused completely. Without one, you wouldn't have the other. Um, so a, a big chunk of animation history, and clearly this then runs into He-Man and She-Ra in the 80s and the, the mutual relationship between kids advertising and kids animation. I had I had a question actually that I, that I don't know if you know the answer to. So, so was this produced by, because when we talk about animation history as we, as we often do, uh, the, and certainly on this podcast, we've talked about a number of studios and, and I remember episodes where we've talked about limited animation style and, um, and UPA sort of modernist graphic uh, design of its characters. And, and I think the Mattel book that you're talking about also, discusses Hanna-Barbera as, again, a similar kind of pared-down visual style, um, perhaps dialogue-heavy, I guess, uh, sound effects. Was this advert produced by Hanna-Barbera? Literally, the kind of migrate... These are producing these... Because I'm just thinking about this is the first advert that we've looked at that is taking a recognisable um, media product or a set of characters and, make, and, and theming them. Uh, and actually, I remember... I think this is true of, of you and Kirkland's writing on like the minions where he talks about their, their theme ability because they're kind of blank characters that can be themed and, and therefore made adaptable to various sorts of holidays. And you get like the Halloween minions and the Christmas minions and, and that sort of stuff. Um, it seemed like this is the first instance where we're sort of getting a theming of, of, of characters or prehistoric characters. But is this, is this a, did Hanna-Barbera produce this advert and it was just, they, they produced an advert for, or the studio produced an advert for this serial or, or yeah, because it sort of really struck me as a, why are the Flintstones selling out themselves like this? <laughs> well, the, Fli- the Flintstones were selling cigarettes. If you go and Google Flintstone cigarette ads, it's not a Christmas ad, so I couldn't include that. But in many ways, I'd rather talk about what are the Flintstones doing smoking here? Um, but uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I don't know who produced this ad, actually. I haven't done the full history here. Um, it, it, it was more indicative of a bigger trend, which is, I think this this serial is is kind of a spin-off of the Flintstones. So what you have is this very complex corporate exchange. I mean, we talk lots about transmedia nowadays, and that we're normally talking about Marvel or you know, comic book interactions. But this is one of these transmedia franchises here. The Flintstones, the Flintstones was the, the first point, a mainstream uh primetime animated show but then they start making uh products with those characters on them and then those characters start advertising those products and we've got this this exchange i mean the flintstones has always had this sort of satirization of consumer culture of course it's kind of 1960s they had all the mod cons in their house but they're they kind of have that novelty prehistoric tweak to them but here they're they're as you say shilling for the man very much here and and also it's by the by the 1980s the flintstones are just a corporate franchise for hire you can you, you know disney won't sell you their characters to sell anything that isn't a disney product they're walled off warner brothers are a bit more selective these kind of lower down the animation food chain characters you can stick them on anything you know you pay your license fee you can do whatever you want it doesn't make for a great ad and the adverts got this also got this weird 
use of 3D at one point in it, like CGI. It must be early CGI, I guess, um, in it. That just speaks to the the kind of mundane reality of what animation is often doing, which is this appeals to kids. The product is a sugary product that kids watch when they're watching Saturday morning TV. Um, the Flintstones is is kind of these characters that are cheaply produced. Of course, there's a value judgment about, oh, Lottie Reiniger is like the, the high canon of animation history. But the Flintstones is a crucial part of, of animation history. Lots of, you know, it employed lots of people. It shaped the way people thought about animation for a long time. And we, we shouldn't ignore it just because this is no masterpiece. Just before we get to the final two, actually, as you were talking and and thinking about this assumption actually you know that transmedia is a contemporary phenomenon when of course it's not in exactly the way that you've described the tendency is to think about it in relation to to well as distinct from multimedia but also very much a digital phenomenon or a digitally um uh, what's the word? Uh, supported phenomenon, but actually, it got, kind of got me thinking about the use of voices and star voices in something like this advert, and 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 um, how, obviously, with contemporary computer animated films, often the star isn't voicing the computer game character version of you know it's 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 Jim Hanks rather than Tom Hanks, that kind of thing. You know, it's Jim Hanks doing the voice of the um, of Woody in in pullstring pull toys rather than Tom Hanks. Uh, it is Jay Farrow doing the voice of Eddie Murphy as the voice of the donkey and the shrek video games uh, and i and i don't know this but as i was listening to that advert i couldn't quite make out whether it was the real flintstones voices or what was happening there but it's i suppose it speaks to a broader thing as, as what you said earlier about the use of stars and and um, a lot of these adverts christmas adverts don't perhaps tend towards stars perhaps because we think of it as a, as a time of family and collectivity and and so it seems you know unless you're elton john and you want to use the john lewis advert to sell your biopic rocket man but that's a separate conversation but there is sort of something interesting about the use of star voices in something like these adverts and 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 whether or not they are part of the sort of canon because they use the same voice actors or or what they're sort of doing I, again i don't I don't have an answer to it I'd, I'd love to know a bit more about about the, yeah, the extent to which that that Flintstones um, advert did use the the sort of real voice cast, but um... just to add to that, I mean, I, I, it sounds like I mean, I didn't create this mismatch much, but quite often that what also happens is this idea of like um, the transmedia effect of moving these characters outside their domain, often to a place where there's slightly a low, more lo-fi production method, um, and the animation feels off. Or, or kind of uncannily, it's them but not them. From everything, from sort of you know um, the use of um, you know a film franchise in a televisual context, whereby suddenly the production values are downgraded a little bit, so the characters are sort of them but sort of not them. To something like you know the, the slightly ickily painted Mickey Mouse on the side of a nursery that haven't quite got the license and paid someone, you know, that clearly doesn't exactly <laughs> work up the road at the Disney studio. But like you know, there's that weird cultural phenomenon. Uh, which I guess links to sort of ideas of you know of animation stardom like David, David McGowan's work and stuff like of of seeing the star, seeing the animation character, but it not being quite the animated character and that sort of uncanny valley that exists within. I'm not sure that's actually what's going on with this, the, the the Flintstones, but I guess there's a certain I don't know canonized problem, which is like, sorry, hang on a minute, what are they doing now? Because shouldn't they be like you know entertaining us rather than selling? There's a sort of betrayal of the implicit contract going on um in there which is which is interesting and the only thing i would say about this 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 one is just the only thing to highlight is of course it's riffing on dickens's christmas carol isn't it um which we've you know we did them up it's christmas carol this time last year um i'm sure it's not the last time we'll mention this thing because it's so embedded within just sort of popular culture's understanding of fantasy christmas narratives you know from from 
the, the obligatory sort of Mickey's Christmas Carol. The fl- we have a Flintstones Christmas Carol in advert form here. To even just things like you know, it's a Wonderful Life, which are essentially riffing on it but doing different things. So it just just goes to show how important that framework, that story is to our popular conceptions of what a Christmas uh, story looks like, even in this animated um, form. And it's, a, I mean, it's a story that ends in consumption. I mean, this is the, that's the question. Dickens is a canny writer who always allows you two interpretations, one of which is this Christian ideal of sharing and coming together. The other is of consumption. And, you know, we've got this big turkey that this tiny Tim and Bob Cratchit were actually perfectly happy there. Um Scrooge is claiming he's come to save Christmas, bringing this big turkey to consume. But it's like, well, actually, is this the case? Maybe. So there's actually more of a connection here. There is also that duality, which animation especially was developing from the 80s onwards and becomes a big part of what, uh, you know, Sam Summers talks about with DreamWorks and things is the dual audience. This is an advert for kids with the serial and the silly voices and stuff. But the, the adults can still engage with this because of those cultural references that children might not get. But but for the adults, they see this as sort of redeeming the, the advert in some way, making them feel clever by noticing the references. I'm conscious of time and we've got two left. I'm going to try and do an impossible task perhaps, but they're both quite short and they're both selling quite well-known products. So perhaps we could try and bunch them together into sort of a pairing, if you will. So just, I need so that we've got, we've got one that seems to be nominalizing, sorry, nominally selling um, Hershey's kisses, I believe, which is a kind of confectionery. I'm aware of the peanut butter cups. Um, I'm not quite sure I'm aware of the kisses, but some sort of chocolate. And then, of course, we couldn't do the whole episode without mentioning a Coca-Cola advert. And you've picked a particularly fine example, Malcolm, that uh, I was saying just before we started recording, gave me a somewhat Proustian moment of recollection. So um, do you want to just sort of, if you can, bunch those two together and sum up why you've picked these particular ones? Because I'm sure both of these products have had a long history of doing Christmas advertisements. So, um... Absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean... Both both of the adverts. So the Coca Cola one is, I mean, I, I I chose it because it's about the campaign. Both of these are really about the campaign. The way animation's not just independent of everything else; it's embedded in this wider process of the campaign that that speaks to the intermediality of of animation. But the Coca Cola ad, there's the polar bears ads, which are a repeated thing, and then the, there is also the Christmas is coming ads, which is sort of looped in together um the hershey's bells ad i'd not seen before and i was sort of investigating but apparently it's a big tradition and traditions the other aspect i wanted to raise here with both of these was the hershey's ad apparently first showed in 89 in america and then every year is repeated and it's become part of the christmas traditions to have this same advert in which the little kisses which also happen to look like little bells are shaped like a christmas tree but but ring um a, a christmas carol out and um so that there's the key thing here is really repetition and tradition the way in which we expect to see the the coca-cola ads whether it's those polar bears who are repeated on uh, uh, endlessly or the christmas is coming ad um and of course coca-cola famously gave father christmas his his current image. Uh, they didn't invent that character, of course, but the the white the white beard and the red suit was something that was really 
popularized through their imagery and advertising. And the, the Hershey Bells, likewise, is about tradition and repetition and the, the fact that you're showing the same things over and over again. And that speaks to animation, I think. Again, if, if, we're, if the question we want to ask, that I always want to ask, is why animation in these things? Yeah, it's an advert, it's selling stuff, of course. Maybe there's a connection with the brand, but particularly why animation? The, the idea of repetition is clearly something that's crucial to animation in its production process, in our consumption of repeated versions of it. And especially in this case, where the, the same ads are recycled every year to build up a tradition that we become attached to um, is perhaps crucial to these these ads, con continuity. We at a, Especially at Christmas, we want to feel connected to the past in some way. Um, and animation does that in lots of ways, but especially in the in these versions. But also this sort of seriality of Christmas. You know, we've all played the game as to when are we going to hear Mariah Carey? When are we going to hear Wham for the first time? And and so that seriality is embedded within and kind of comes into collision with a Christmas period where you're sort of we finally heard. You know, you're talking to somebody with the surname with the surname Holiday, and it would be remiss if I didn't start singing The Holidays Are Coming, which is what we used to sing when we went to, to visit relatives or whatever during the Christmas period. So, um, And we still have an ongoing kind of social media joke, me and my sister, is like, have you seen it yet, the first advert, etc. So the seriality of Christmas and, and the sort of the eventness of when is that when is when does Christmas begin well it doesn't begin in October when a shop starts selling Christmas baubles it begins really when you start hearing a, a, a kind of corpus of songs and equally you know we're, we're at a particular period where certain kinds of Christmas songs by the Pogues and Kirsten McCall are getting a bit of visibility because people have never heard of a radio edit so there's lots and lots of things about the seriality of Christmas that that ties in quite nicely with what you're saying about the the about nostalgia, but also about the the sort of the role of tradition. I was less familiar with the with the Hershey's, and it's you know very it's very short and I sort of looking at it. So it's bells ringing of their own volition, and then I just wrote, "We all want some figgy pudding?" Question mark. So that was that, and the sort of sonic aspect of of, of Christmas. So I was less familiar with Hershey's, mainly because I think the chocolate is disgusting. There I've said it. Um, but obviously Coca-Cola, polar bears. I'd noticed that they, so the characters themselves first appeared in the 20s and that these are these are sort of regular sort of symbols for, for Coca-Cola. And then I, I found that in 2012, there was a short film starring those polar bears. So they've now made the, the leap to short film production. Good luck to them. So yeah, I mean, I thought it was great. You know, the advert that you, that you showed... I had the date of 93, but you said it was first around in the 80s, which was kind of tally with CGI anyway. Um, and I, so I, I hadn't realised it was it was sort of a repeated advert, but obviously ninety three Jurassic Park two years before Toy Story etc. So it would fit quite nicely with the use of CGI and 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 the what CGI looks like in those adverts as opposed to what it looked like on screen cinema screens at that particular time. And and so I'm sort of interested in yeah what CGI was doing on adverts and, and on television as opposed to the sort of spectacle spectacle of techno futurism that it was sort of doing on screen. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I I like them. I like them both. The Coca-Cola one one felt more familiar to me in the in a way that the Hershey's one I sort of felt a little bit disconnected to. But um, yeah, don't I, like the chocolate. Either. I have two points on on them, which is that I think the Coca Cola one did feel familiar to me because I I hadn't thought about it for years, but I remember that one. I think I was probably quite young when I saw it for the first time, so um, it had that sort of resonance with me. And I think both of them, uh, both the Hershey's and the Coca Cola advert, 
demonstrate a sort of um well this is links to chris's work actually so uh that's annoying but it listen to chris's work on sort of you know uh, animation's ability to sort of offer up anthropomorphic effective spaces in which we can inhabit because it's interesting the coca-cola advert of course it's it's trying to normalize quite a peculiar activity which is drinking coca-cola in the cold um, and it does it by rooting us in the perspective of a polar bear discovering this magical Coca-Cola. And of course, that's exactly what you need to do at the, at, in December when you're trying to sound Coca-Cola, because that's what—that's when you need people to be drinking it. So it's, it, it, I mean, it's, it's bizarre enough that Coca-Cola is associated with Christmas, because of course, you know, I would have thought, certainly my consumption of soft, chilled drinks goes up in the summer, not in the winter. Likewise, uh, you know, cr- uh, ice cream and all this kind of stuff. So they're using anthropomorphic imagery to root you in a phenomenological experience they want you to have, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, the bells also sort of make magical these quite mundane objects. And then the final thing I'll say is, is this idea of repetition. Of course, the other thing, to bring it back to what I said about, what, an hour or so ago about desire, is that what is desire if not a, re- a repetitive act we repeat over and over again that brings you know, energy and dynamism into our lives? You know, how many times in my life have I desired a cheeseburger? You know, and yet the next time I desire a cheeseburger, the desire will be felt and perhaps even more felt because I know I keep desiring cheeseburgers. My waistline certainly does anyway. Um, So like there's a certain interesting relationship between repetition, desire, fantasy and animation that, that, that still is rooted in the sort of DNA of all these things. It makes them really um, fascinating to talk about. Um, I think we're, we're probably at the end of our, of our journey there. uh, uh, Malcolm, I mean, this is hard, but is there like you know we're going to put all of these up on um, on our on our website? So in the in the in the page for this podcast, you can find it and watch them at your leisure, listeners. Is there one or two you'd you'd pick out or single out as particularly um, worth watching, um, or or are they just just recommend them all? If you want to sit on the fence, uh, I mean none of them were chosen because they're masterpieces. Obviously, the Lottie Reininger one is probably the one you feel like fits the the chance of making the canon it's one of the you know a really crucial figure in animation history uh it it does have a lot of appealing qualities to it although also the the underlying things we talked about i guess the other end of the scale that flintstones one just because it's it's kind of horrible really and and you've got to recognize but it exists and that's that's one of the things we do is advertising we're not here to build a canon and find the great men of of history here we're here to identify how do we think about animation how is it embedded in our lives and if the Flintstones ad kind of tells you we all know who the Flintstones are and and this is something that surrounds us the whole time and that we need to notice that that everyday quality as well as the unique ones um whereas some of the others are are intentionally trying to create a uniqueness or a difference or stand out. The Flintstones one's everyday mundane, just as the product it's selling is. And, and we, we need to, you know, I want, I would like everyone, all our listeners here to go, let's lo- notice these adverts, whether they're when you're at the, you know, out and about and they're on screens out in public, whether they're on your mobile phone, web ads, they're all animated adverts and they're, ubiquitous everywhere around us they're not only key to to employing people in the animation industry but they're they're so central to the way we look at the world now that we 
can't ignore them. No, absolutely. Um, and something that I think we, those of us who teach animation, sort of try and impress on our students, as you say, the kind of cultural ubiquity of, of, of animation and how it's embedded into into, lo- into lots of different practices and on, on different platforms. I mean, for me, um, a- advertising has no influence on me whatsoever. So, uh, and on that note, I'm going to go and drink Coca-Cola whilst eating Hershey's and, and a chocolate cereal while buying a Cartier watch from John Lewis in silhouette. So there we go. Well, speaking of advertising, um, uh, Malcolm, can where can listeners find your book? Um, and if they so wish to purchase it. Uh, yeah, Animation and Advertising, edited by myself and Kirsten Moana Thompson, containing lots of great, it's an edited collection. So it's got lots of great contributions. One from Mr. Christopher Holiday on Pixar's adverts uh one by tasha petter on lottie reininger uh, lots of other great uh chapters by lots of other great scholars in there too uh it's published by palgrave as part of the palgrave animation series that's edited by paul ward and caroline ruddle do check it out and um yeah we hope to continue the conversation and you have a twitter feed right yeah there's a animation and advertising twitter feed and also myself the the, my handle's Malcolm Cook seventy six. The animation and advertising ones probably not well designed. I think it's Anim Ad One or something. Uh, but if you search for it, you'll find okay, it. Cool, terrific. I hope people check it out because it's a really worthwhile topic that needs continued conversation, as you say. Um, talking of continued conversation, we're going to take a very quick pause after this episode um, for a, for a Christmas break. Um, so we'll be back in early January. So only a few more weeks, but we'll be back soon. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at, uh, fan and in research on all our various social media handles, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit, as well as the website, fancy animation.org, where you can access our podcasts, read previous blog posts and continue to take part in the conversation. Malcolm, thanks so much for coming on the show. We've really appreciated you sharing some really like, uh, both, both very well seen and some slightly more hidden examples from animation advertising history. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Chris, I guess I'll see you in the new year. You will. It's been 2020 has been a strange one, but um, yeah, I'll see you in 2021. <laughs> Maybe in the same room at one point if, uh, yes. if, if the months go by, but until then listeners um, have a great Christmas. Uh, Happy new year. And we'll see you in 2021. Goodbye. Bye. Back of my hand I've